So it is a matter of having dedication, hard work and confidence. But if you love writing, if the rest of the world disappeared, but you would keep on writing, if you've got that depth of love for creating books, yes, of course you are going to be a writer. You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. The Adelaide Writers' Week is on and I am so fortunate to catch up with the Jackie French. Now, this is a coup for me because this woman's a very busy and very successful writer and um, it's just a joy. So, welcome. Jackie. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) I've just recently had a workshop with you. I was very lucky to go into the beautiful Araluan Valley and do a workshop with you. So I got a lot of clues about um, writing from you. It was one of the best workshops I have ever attended, I can tell you. I'm glad. I think with that one, I was totally free because, in fact, it was free. So often when you give workshops... You think that, okay, people want to come out of this with a savable manuscript. And not charging gave me the freedom to be quite honest. Um, And one of the things about honesty is that not everyone is going to be published, that there is a very large industry in letting people assume that all you need to do is do this course or do another one or do another one and you'll be a published author. Now, when I was a kid, it was the opposite. When I was a kid, we were told, no, 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 dear, you can't possibly be a writer when you leave school. No one can make a living being a writer. It's almost impossible even to be published in Australia unless you plan to go overseas and you'll need a lot of money to do that. Now, things have changed. These days, we have got the most wonderful writing industry. But it's still the case. First of all, kids are told you can't make a living being a writer when, look, tens of people, hundreds of people make a very good living being a writer. But it's also true that not everyone is going to make it. If a kid wanted to be a doctor, you wouldn't say, oh, no, dear, you can't make it in being a doctor. You'd say, look, you are going to have to be clever and work extremely hard for a long amount of time. And even then, there is no surety you are actually going to pass every exam. And that's really the advice we need to be given novice authors. Yes, of course you can do it. But you need to be realistic. You need to be bright. You need to be passionate. You need to have the dedication to work for years before you get it. You might fluke the odd story and then get nothing for another two or three years and feel absolutely desperate. And then you'll hear the whispers again. No one can make a living being a writer. No, no, they're not accepting. Well, Jackie, I was so thrilled when you said in Araluan Valley, you said that um, there's a rumour going around that most the average writer makes 13000 a year. <laughs> and it's not true. I loved that you said, I know some authors that make two or 300000 And yes. most authors earn less than 13000 yes. so I am married to a man who is counted in the statistics of what writers earn. Um, last year, I think he earned $56. He wrote one book um, about... 12 years ago, and he still gets a very small amount of money from it. A dear friend who wrote, in fact, one of the world's great books on her subject. It is set in most major universities. She is an extraordinary, incredible author. But with a book like hers, it's aimed at universities. It's aimed at um, postgraduate students. Once a library has got a copy, they're probably not going to buy another copy until there's wears out, and yes. very few students are going to be able to afford to buy it. So she gets somewhere between two and four hundred dollars a year. Yes. There's also an ac- fairly accurate statistic that most books don't stay in print for more than five or six years, which is why we're 
Productivity Commission said authors should lose their copyright after four years because most books don't stay in print. And that too is completely misunderstanding statistics. My husband's $56 a year is um, averaged with authors who earn um, who earn $3 million a year. We should be looking at the mean, not the average. And yes. um, it's also, we need to be looking at how books survive. Most books are only ever printed once, and a lot of those are the ones in the bestseller list. They're the sex life of a cricketer, um, they're the autobiography of a politician, or rather the biography of a politician that tells something nice and scandalous. It comes out for the Christmas market. It will sell over 100,000 copies within a few weeks, and then it will vanish. It will be remaindered, and it will never be it's extraordinary again so yes there are books and uh, that are crafted by writers and then there are famous people who tend to write a book on the side or you know they're not they're not really authors as such well i i used to think that um i'm no longer quite sure about that now there are books which are obviously ghost written um the celebrity did not write them and they will vanish but for many people who are celebrities, they are celebrities because they are extremely clever people. Right. And their career will gradually morph into being an author. And right. with some of those, you do get absolutely brilliant writing. These are very, very intelligent people. And it's very easy yes. to dismiss their books um, just because, well, they are celebrities Yes. Um, but yes, their books, their books are magnificent. The so as I said, there are two re, two kinds of books. One appears and vanish, vanishes. Mm-hmm. The other ones can be more or less at the bottom of a bestseller list, but they will keep selling more year after year after year. Um, and that's usually the case with my books. Talking to Someone at Harper Collins last week, and I was saying, "Oh, look, how did this book go? That book go? That have come out in the last year or the year before?" And she was saying, "Oh, yes, no, they look um, good, good." But she said, "Well, of course, with yours, your books, we don't can't really tell for somewhere between five or ten years. It's all word of mouth, and that's, that's the case." Wonderful. I was thinking that my books, Oracle and Pharaoh, had never sold very well until she said, um, "Well, actually, we're up to fifty-six thousand copies." And that's after that's about not bad, that's after about five years. I think, <laughs> oh, right, really, are we? And again, they did not sell very many in their first couple of years. They weren't yes. shortlisted for anything. Um, they don't really appear in school curricula. Um, and yet, by word of mouth, each year they sell more copies. Walking the boundaries just yes. continues to sell. And this is what you were saying: is that your income is is about. You said the best advice you ever had was that, that it's in your back, back list. Yes. yes, I was given that by Robin Wallace Crabb, who writes under the name of Robin Wallace. And he was giving me the advice that, yes, stay with the one publisher as much as possible because then they have a vested interest in keeping your backlist in print. Yes. If they know you're, they're going to get your next book, they will keep your backlist in yes. print. Now these so they're days, investing you rather than the yes. book. Though these days it's much easier to keep a backlist in print because there's print on demand. So yes. some of my books which have been out of print, now people can basically order any of my books, but they may have to wait three or four weeks before it comes in. So always yes. remember you yes. are never limited to the books in a bookshop. These days you can order print on demand with anything that they've got a file for. But I very strongly feel it's a measure of a book's worth. The books that sell and keep selling year after year after year and the sales just go up a bit more every year, every year, every year. It's passive income, isn't it? It's wonderful. Oh, I mean, you do the yeah. work once mm. and then it's passive income after that, yes. isn't it? Yes, and that is how you make a reasonably secure income as an author. Now, mm. It's certainly also, not a secure no. income. But then again, these days what income is, when I gave up a secure job or the idea of a secure job to become an author, 
it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I still occasionally have nightmares about making that decision. But the ironic thing is everyone that I knew in really safe jobs, including two doctors, um, has since lost their jobs. They've been, they've been made redundant. The, the, scheme, the scheme has been abolished. The department's been abolished, etc., etc., etc. The world has changed yes. very sadly. Yes. Uh, it's probably impossible to say yes. anything is a secure income. Mm. But once you've got a backlist, once you've actually got that name there, mm. yes, it's probably as secure a job. As and you and you also are a journalist, as as I mean, you earn money. I, I, you're in the newspaper all the time. So I look. That's sort of also accidental, um, <laughs> right? I do it because I enjoy it, but I don't make very much money from it. That's right. probably also the reason I do it, because it's a creative way of marketing too, isn't it? Keeping your 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 profile out there. I don't think so. It's interesting looking at Twitter and Facebook, the um, gardening articles that I post there um, have very, very, very few likes, very few views compared to the other things I'll put on it. I don't think there is very much overlap. Um, I do deeply, deeply enjoy gardening, but the joy of actually not being paid very much for it means that I can say whatever I want to. And <laughs> I keep well, I keep on thinking, look, they're going to kick me out when I say that. But it wouldn't make a great deal of difference yes. if, if that happens. So yes. it does mean um, I am free to write what I want to. And that also includes not endorsing any commercial product. That um, is a freedom, isn't that it? That is That's... an enormous mm. freedom. I occasionally will mention one, but it's something that I use. That you actually love. Yes, but, <laughs> yes. It's, but it's very, very, very rare right. for me to ever mention any, any commercial product at all. Jackie, I'd like to ask you a bit about your books because I'm looking at them here and I notice the very top book in this pile I'm looking at is Goodbye, Mr Hitler. And when we were down um, in the Araluan Valley, you read the opening of this book and you could have heard a pin drop. It's a very powerful opening. Can you tell me where, where did you um, get the idea that, I, that you wanted to write this book? It began with Hitler's daughter. There are three in the series. Yes. Hitler's daughter is a story within a story. And that was the first one. That was, yes. yes. And that was really saying, um, how do you know when you're 14 and the world around you is insane? What is good and what is evil? It's about a girl who believes she is Hitler's daughter. Now, mm -hmm. as they make clear in the sequel, Goodbye, Mr. Hitler, of course, she was a foster child. Hitler, well, he didn't really adopt um, the propaganda section, um, mm. arrange for him to adopt mm. an enormous number of children, and he'd be photographed with his hands on their shoulders, looking loving the father mm. of the nation, etc., etc. And then mm. they may never see him again or only ever see him a few times. Mm. I assumed everyone would assume that Heidi was a foster child mm. who just hoped desperately this man, who was the centre of Germany at that time, was her actual father. The second one, Pennies for Hitler, is about how hatred is contagious, but so is kindness. It's about a boy called Georg who loses everything. His country, he's German, his identity, he must pretend to be George, an English boy. His mm -hmm. father is English, so he can. He comes out to Australia. And then Japan and swore, finally, there is an enemy that isn't him. He can join in the hatred. Hatred is contagious. But finally, he can stand it no longer. He runs into the bush. There is a scene that I read out for kids where he looks up and there is a plane and it explodes. And he sees a white shape coming to ground and he realises it is an enemy. He runs over to the man who is unconscious. There is blood welling out of his neck. Um, all he can see is the blood, the oriental eyes. And he has got a chance to kill an enemy, this boy who has lost everything. He lifts up a stone and the man makes a sound, the first human sound he has heard that whole night long. And he's got a choice. 
which is going to be stronger, hatred or kindness? Because kindness is contagious too. And that's what I ask kids when I read that paragraph. There he is, the stone in his hand lifted up. There is the unconscious man. This is a boy who's going first aid. This is a boy who has lost everything. What is he going to do? Is he going to kill the enemy? Or is he going to try and save his life? It's chilly. What is strongest? Mm. The really interesting thing is I've now asked many thousands of kids that question. There have only been two boys who said that his duty above all was to kill the enemy. Mm. And they were terrified. They, despite the fact there were hundreds of hands all around them saying, no, 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 he's, mm. he's going to save the man's life. Um, they put their hands up. They were supporting each other to put their hands up. One of them was crying, just the tears rolling down his face. It was not easy for them to say, the duty above all is to kill an enemy. And you wonder what on earth have those boys been through, if that's what they... When young people have read books year after year after year, they've been 10,000 people. Um, if they read this book... Um, if they read any of the series, they will have experienced what it's like to be those people, but they will also have experienced what it was like to be there at that time. All of us have only got one life to experience, and we don't really experience the lives of people on TV. But with a good book, you are that person, you are there at that in history mm. and it means not just your empathy but the sheer breadth of experience and understanding becomes so extraordinarily deeper yes. and I just so hope that those boys went away and they read and instead of the very narrow existence they'd had with people who were obviously telling them your duty above all is to kill the enemy no matter what, no matter what the cost to you or anyone else. Mm. I really hope they have access to the books which may give them a feeling of what it's like to be the person called enemy. Mm. I, I, um, I was very moved and, and enthralled with your passion for history and I loved that you said that children can take a lot of pain they can take difficult subjects as long as there's hope as long as there's hope yes yes the worst thing you can do for a child is write a book that's depressing unhappiness isn't depression depression is where there is no way out mm. um kids also when you're writing for kids you always have to give a hint too that yes there is hope and yes turn the page keep turning the page yes. and there are going to be good things but again as I show explicitly in Goodbye, Mr. Hitler, even when things are at their very, very worst, there is beauty and there is joy around, even just looking at the sky, even looking at the birds. Um, there is beauty there. Um, a very wise man once told me that when bad things happen to you, hold them gently, hold them at arm's length so that you're looking straight at them. Don't turn your eyes away. You have to. Um, don't try and hide the things that are upsetting you. But be aware of the beauty in the world all around and also be aware there are almost certainly people who want to help you and one of the greatest things you can do is ask for help. Now, the first person who wants to help you may not be able to. The 20th person who wants to help may not be able to, but there will almost certainly be people who do want to help. And quite coincidentally, a couple of weeks after that, my husband's heart stopped. He was raced to Canberra Hospital. I followed in the car. And I still remember that afternoon as being one of the most beautiful in my life. Yes, um, I was desperately worried, desperately desperate I think I don't mm. think I can even give words to what I felt but I still remember the way the sunlight glinted through the tussocks I remember the shadows coming down the gullies um, it was just so beautiful 
and the beauty and the pain of that day are never going to leave me. I'm reminded um, of um, Margaret Atwood, uh, who who wrote that um, wonderful essay about the spotty-handed villainesses. Mm. Have you have you no, heard that speech? No, I haven't. It's no. a wonderful speech, and she says that you know we went through um, uh, through history writing women characters as the good woman, mm. Mm. and then um, and all men were evil. Yes, <laughs> and yes. Then and then we started to have evil women, and she said, you know, nobody's purely evil or purely good there are as you said in every tragedy and Shakespeare does it as mm, well too mm. it, there's comedy and there's beauty yes yes so I love that you capture those things let me ask you about your beautiful books um you became very famous for your wombat your little <laughs> children's yes. stories about yes. wombats and everyone loves those but I'm looking here at some very substantial young adult <laughs> books. Um, um, they're actually classified as adult. Pardon? They're classified, oh, they're classified as adults. As adult, right. yes. Um, but do I, young adults read them as well? Yes, they yes. do. Yes. And they're put out. Um, the ones that you've got in your hand now are the adult versions, but for both yes. of them, there will be young adult versions coming versions out. Versions of them. Oh, um, right. They'll come out next so year. So for those listening, I'm holding this beautiful book called Facing the Flame, In Bushfire We Unite Again, This Land of Love and Flame. And, of course, uh, for the people who live in Canberra, because that's where I come from, that would have a very special meaning and certain parts of Victoria and other areas in that, Australia. That book is based on two fires. One a fire that I fought in 1978 and a fire I didn't face but went through in 2003, the, the Canberra fire. The, Canberra fire. the, the book yes. is set in, 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 19, in 1978. Right. And so the methods of firefighting are the ones that were used back yes, then. Yes, it, it, it says a captivating story of strength of spirit and the power of love and unity. And, and I'm also reminded about a line from a movie, um, Star, Starman, I think it was, where he said um, he was from outer space and he said, you humans, you are the most beautiful people when things are at their worst. Look, I feel that very strongly. When times are hardest, humans are capable of the greatest courage, compassion, colleagueship um, and self-sacrifice. Mm -hmm. um, there is a scene there where um, Sam... Um, they've been fighting the fire all night. They're still fighting because um, they realise, look, a few hours more, we can get this under control, so we are not leaving. They're ignoring bushfire control, telling them to come back again. And he's thinking of his pregnant wife and thinking that he's doing it for her and then realising, no, um, he would be doing this anyway. He is there fighting it with his friends and he is partly there because all his life he has been doing things for the community um, shoulder to shoulder with his friends. But he also realises even without his friends, he would still be doing this because it is the right thing to do. I think this um, Australian Women's Weekly praise um, is just very typical of all of your work, really. Heartwarming, heartbreaking, and hard to put down. <laughs> I love that. And and there and are there are happy endings, not just one ending, because yes. I think um, you do time, believe in hope. Yes, <laughs> yes, but also too, I don't believe in one happy ending. Mm. Um, life never ties itself up neatly. So in most of my books, there is more than one happy mm. ending. Yes. Uh, Life is messy. <laughs> uh, life, life is messy, but also too, um, life, life is good. There are different criteria, though, for um, what, what a good life could be. Mm. So for some people, we'll find joy in evening lives that we would find very, very hard to contemplate living, and yet... There is, there is joy there. Look, I don't want to sound too Pollyanna-ish and say, oh, look, no, life, life, life is always wonderful, etc., etc. But um, I think we're, we've got this evolutionary 
ability to only focus on the bad things. If you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, um, you can't stop and smell the roses and say, oh, how beautiful the color pattern is in the sky today. <laughs> you cannot do that. This no. is not good. So we have to learn again. Um, as long as we are not being chased by the saber-toothed tiger and have to put absolutely every skerrick we have got into actually just surviving this situation, um, when you do have the odd moment spare, don't spend it um, reliving the horrible things. Spend it on the joy. And that's the happy all, memories, yes. And that's also um, the ending of mm. Goodbye. Mr. Hitler, where that book really came from speaking to Holocaust survivors. I wanted to know why they thought they survived. And look, all of these people I'd met because they were doing really, really good work in the community. They spent their lives really working um, for good things. And I thought they were probably going to say, oh, look, people who had a real capacity for friendship and et cetera, et cetera, had a greater chance of living. They didn't. Every one of them said no. It was simply luck, just mm. luck. Mm. Um, but the words of one of them, because I, I also want to know, how was it that people like you, where one of the worst crimes in history was committed against you, and yet you live their lives of so much love, and they laughed at that, and they just said no, you... Um, you have to make the decision to forgive every single day. One man said it was the day his son was born and he said he held him in his arms and he looked into his eyes and he realised he had no room in his heart for love because it was filled with hate. And he said, I made the vow that day, I will be a man of love. I will do this for my son. But he said every single day. You need to forgive again. And for me, that resonated very powerfully because my youth was both bizarre and probably, probably, um, probably about um, 50% boredom and 45% terror, and the rest was books, and it was quite bizarre. And I was going to say I have great difficulty putting it behind me, but of course I don't. It appears in my books over and over and over. Yes. But can I read you just the ending of Goodbye, Mr. Hitler? Because I think that would be this is, this is what they taught me, that you don't have to forgive once. It's a decision that you make every day. You wake up and say, yes, today, just today, I will forgive. I will forgive and I will not dwell in the past. I will be the person I am today. Um, There in the park with my family and my friends, the ogre is dead at last. For me, for Frau Marx and for Helga, but others have had to carry him in their hearts all their lives. When an ogre swallows you, it is not easy to be free. The world has many ogres. Some, like Mr. Hitler, do not even know that they are ogres, but dream they are the hero of the story. But I have learnt this in the years since I was ten years old. When you see injustice, stand beside each other and seize your spears. My spears are made of words. Yours may be different, but do not hesitate or look away. If too many look away, the ogres win. To be most deeply human, we must risk our lives for others. Only when we stand together can we be truly free. It is not easy fighting ogres. No one who fights an ogre comes away unscarred even if you cannot see the wounds. And so you owe the ogre hunters this. When the ogre has been vanquished, sit down upon the quiet earth and try to understand the ogre's anguished and his twisted fear. Only by understanding can we stop them rising in our midst. And when you understand, forgive.
and then stand up and live. Live well. That's just so beautiful and such a good message for children, isn't it? It is. It's... mm. It's so easy to Mm. say, look, forgive your enemies. It's so easy to Mm. say, forgive and forget. But, of course, you don't forget. And as long as you don't forget, Mm. it's very, very hard to forgive. And when you still bear the scars, when you still bear the terrors, um, it is incredibly hard to forgive. But what I learned that day was... Um, you don't need to just forgive once. It is still perfectly okay to know that every day you have to make the decision, I will forgive just for today. Beautiful. Jackie, I, I have another book in front of me that looks like something completely different. <laughs> the Lily and the Rose from the best-selling author of Miss Lily's Lovely Ladies. <laughs> oh, Quickly, I... please tell me, what is this about? It's really um, probably a cross between Downton Abbey and James Bond. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> they are they are unputdownable books. Um, they... Again, have got um, espionage, they have got beautiful clothes, fantastic food, but they have also got areas of history that we simply do not know. And most of that is because it's female history. I started that with A Rose for the Anzac Boys, which is a book for 10 to 14-year-old girls or um, young people. Um, It's about four girls. I had gradually discovered... Um, through research that the role of women in World War One has been not just ignored but changed by history because nearly all of the hospitals, more than 95% of the hospitals were unofficial, more than 95% of the ambulances were unofficial. They were not affiliated either with the Red Cross um, nor with the um, services until America came into the war with their own far better facilities and that meant of course they were not in the records it's only when you start looking at the records of wounded men or men who were ill and find out who treated them what ambulance they were in and what hospital they went to you realize the sheer magnitude we are talking at millions of women were serving on those battlefields and they are not there in the books and the movies and the history they have vanished and so book one Um, as Sophie um, again finds out about, well, um, chlorine gas and tries to stop it, um, racing through um, the battlefields, the front line, to frantically try and stop it being used because at that stage it was thought was the ultimate weapon which might win the war. I was trying to show the sheer magnitude of women's roles there. The Lily in the Rose is set after the war But it's a time when women are being written out of the history of the war. They are meant to leave the jobs. They are meant to go back to domesticity. But even more importantly, the records are being carefully ignored and erased. It was very uncomfortable for men because, of course, the reason they were there is that the um, services simply could not run the war without them. They had no hospital facilities. Um, they had one dentist, I think, in the entire um, Allied forces um, until America came came on board. They didn't have the ambulances, etc. They desperately needed them. They certainly didn't have, have the food supplies. So the women's role was vital, not just the women at home, but as I said, the hundreds of thousands or even millions who were there on those battlefields. But, of course, the 20s and the 30s were not really peace. The 20s and the 30s were really just an extension of the armistice. Mm-hmm. And the Lily and the Rose opens with Sophie heading through war-torn Europe to Munich, where the revolutionaries, the Bolshevik revolutionaries, have taken control and declared a Soviet. Um, one of the things, again, that was carefully written out of history is the revolt by British soldiers to form a Soviet. Mm. Um, something, again, we never, we mm. never see. Um, Jackie, we... You, you just so, 
steeped in history. I wonder, were you once a history teacher by any chance? No, I've never. I've no, never, no. But you've just always loved history. Yes, but my mother had, and father studied history. Um, right. Their university history books and also um, original books like Tenter's Diary were there, and no one really cared what I read. So even by the ages of three or four, I was reading Tenter's Diaries um, as something to read. My grandfather, too, had the most extraordinary historical library that I was free of. So from a very early age, I knew the difference between the history we learned and what really happened. And Mm. trust me, in year three, putting your hand up and saying, oh, no, miss, that's wrong. It didn't happen like that. Um, (laughs) It wasn't until I was in um, year 10 at a very, very good high school that I suddenly found history teachers who delighted in someone giving an answer that wasn't in the textbook. I still remember the history teacher in year 10. Um, We were supposed to be marking each other's work and my friend put up her hands um, to actually say, look, she's put down this answer. And he just said, no, no, look, whatever Miss French has said, just just, just say she's right. Believe it. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, Jackie, let me ask you, do you ever write anything frivolous? <laughs> These are all books of substance. Well, Do you ever um, write anything for fun, you know, short stories or f- frivolous pieces? Well, that is a lovely thing about Miss Gilly. Miss Gilly is fun. I cannot wait. As soon as I get back, I'm starting on book number three. Um, Ninety. 5% of them is sheer, absolute, complete fun, romance, food, right. etc. Okay. Um, it's just that you have also got um, this deeply accurate um, version of the past. And so, by setting, yes. so by setting the story there, um, yes. it's not a lecture saying, look, um, they're wrong, this is what happened. <laughs> Set a story there and people are there, they are living it and they know what what it's like. But there's many books too, as they progress, they're not just about the role of women, they're about how we see ourselves. Miss Lily, in the first book, um, gets girls of extremely good family from across the <laughs> empire. And she believes the only way a woman can wield power is through a man, as a wife, as a mistress, with, with a salon, etc. And so if that is the only way a woman will have power, she will teach them how to do it properly. Wonderful. Using using ways yes, which which may not be um yeah, well, put it this way, um you do not publicise the fact that you were ever um a pupil of Miss Lily. Um right. but um the various pupils will form a network um across um well right right across Europe. And Miss Lily's ambition is for peace. But she realizes of course that that is impossible. But after the war, um, what what happens to Miss Lily? And in fact, who is Miss Lily? Because as Sophie discovers um, about a third of the way through, Miss Lily, in fact, does not exist. Who is Miss Lily? And in the second book, um, what happens to Miss Lily then? So it's not just about the role of women. It's the way we think of ourselves. Mm. And for upper-class and educated women before World War One, that's what they were. They were, that if you wanted power, it was only really through a man. Mm. That wasn't the case in World War One. Well, they um, do still say that behind every great woman, I mean, great man is a woman. <laughs> yes. I think nowadays, too, luckily, um, people are starting to say the opposite as well. Behind mm. every great woman. Or, or, a man. Yes, or Prime Minister of New Zealand. They're, they're, Times they're, have changed. But... Um, it's really interesting. So that that's really what the series is going to be back. But that's just the background. As I said, that's most of fabulous. it is sheer, unadulterated, just yes. fun and joy Sounds and romance. Wonderful. But, and the cover is just gorgeous, ladies and gentlemen. But, but um, by 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 World War Two, um, women had power actually as assistants in their own right, secretaries. Um, Aracel Sheldon, who wrote as James Tiptree Junior. 
um, wrote about the women that men don't see. It's one of the titles of her one of the magnificent stories. Right. They were the women, she worked for the CIA. They were the women who run the libraries, the data things, yes. the cataloging, who study yes. the photographs, etc., etc. Yes. But men do not see them and they do not realize the power they wield. Mm. Um, the head of MI5 in World War One did in fact acknowledge that the major decisions and organizations were made by his mm. secretary in yes. AFAT in Mayfair. And by World War Two, things had changed drastically again. By 1942, um, the British um, Secret Service had lost or had been turned every single agent, every single one by 1942 had either been killed or been captured, which is actually a pretty bad it's record. And you, and you can yeah. actually see why they didn't really want to publicise it either then or till 50 years afterwards. Yes. But that was when they started recruiting women. A no. man is very obvious, but in wartime, um, but a woman isn't. Right. And that's one of the other ones. Um, you start in Miss Gilly's Lovely Ladies in, um, with Love from Miss Gilly, which is a free book. You can access it on my website. Oh, fabulous. What well, was for all of those who couldn't wait for the second yes. one. And certainly um, in this book, The Lily and the Rose, there's La Dame Blanche. When you think of resistance fighters, you think of um, young men in, in blue berets with, yes. with machine guns. Mm. And the most successful resistance movement started in World War One was almost entirely women. Um, the British men thought they ran it, but when you hear the records of the women in Madame Blanche, they just let the men think that because that was comfortable. Right. Um, <laughs> there were more than 3,000 of them. Um, they specialised yeah. in, say, mothers and grandmothers. Yes. Um, if a young man blows up a railway bridge, they're probably captured. If an old woman does it with her granddaughter, you don't run away. The German soldiers find no, no. The German find uh, soldier finds you sobbing there. You're sure it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Please, please, officer, please, it's terrible. And they're far more likely to pat your shoulder and take you away and find you a nice cup of coffee. Um, And um, (laughs) they will not. They will not actually suspect you. Yeah. And so um, it's. They, they were incredible. Only nine of them, I think, were ever captured. They were extraordinary. And they were women, and they have been almost right. entirely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, men prefer to imagine that they are the ones who yes. are the successful <laughs> fighters. Course. And they are in the ways that men choose to fight. Yes. But when women do, um, they often use very different tactics. Yes. And as in World War Two, they were extremely successful, and World <laughs> War One as well. Wonderful. Look, uh, I know that we're tight for time, and we need to finish up because um, you're actually um, you're wanted at the <laughs> festival today. <laughs> you're in great demand. Um, I just want to finish off from um, the perspective of the emerging writers who are listening. Yes. Um, I think that. Um, uh, you obviously enjoy your writing so much that you're probably very, very productive on each and every day. Um, what sort of average, do you have a word count that you work to or do you have hours that you work? How? What is your process in your work? I usually work nine to five, but that was just something I got into when my son went to preschool and then to school. Um, and then I answer um, letters or emails, etc. at night um, while watching a DVD. Um, so they're long hours. I, I wanted they are long to hours, know that. But there are, yes. Yeah. Um, look, it's a job. You, you, you work mm-hmm. at it. It is important to work every day if you can. It takes me three days to get back into a book if I've been interrupted. Um, I do write those three days because if you don't, you're not going to get to day number three. But I do realise the first three days I write probably are going to be rubbish and they're going to have to be trashed or deeply, deeply, deeply changed. So so when you're starting, a lot of our listeners mm. are emerging writers starting, um, what sort of advice would you give them in terms of practice? Okay, first of all, write every day um, and write for at least half an hour every day. Secondly, 
the trash is your friend. Um, it is far, far easier to rewrite than it is to write. So just get those words down, see it as a word bucket, just write. But before you write, think. Think what you are writing about. If you can, write the ending of the book first, because you can't write the ending without being sure of who you're writing about, how they're going to change, what are the themes of your books. Now, you probably won't stick with that ending. It's not a recipe for sponge cake. But if you write that ending, it is a discipline to make you think about the progress and the process of your book. Always remember, though, you are writing for the reader, not yourself. Now, I started this saying that not everyone will become a published author, but that's no reason not to write. Um, I would, well, look, I wrote for nearly 30 years, um, never thinking anyone would ever read anything I wrote. I wrote for the sheer joy of it. When you go for a bushwalk, you don't go for a bushwalk because it's going to be filmed and shown on television. You do it simply for the joy of doing it. Um, it's the sheer joy of creation. That is why you should write. And the publishing is just, well, um, a very nice way of giving you a lot more time to write because then they'll send you royalties. Always remember that either you write for yourself, in which case it's a diary or just something for yourself, or you are writing for a reader. What do they want and need to hear? And why are they going to turn the page? Very few people ever turn a page and think, oh, isn't that beautiful imagery? I'm going to read it again for more imagery. They <laughs> will turn the page because you've set such a wonderful scene. They want to stay in it. This is lovely. I love this life they're leading. They'll turn the page because you've created a wonderful atmosphere, but not the imagery. Imagery, um, metaphors, similes, um, adverbs, adjectives, they need to be used like salt. A tiny little bit of salt makes everything more vivid. If you add too much, all you taste is the salt. And it's the same with too much imagery, with overwriting. A little bit is wonderful. It makes it vivid. It creates the atmosphere. But too much, all you ever see um, are there too many words and they just simply clog it up and it is completely counterproductive by adding too much salt. And also, you've only got seven seconds. If you send a manuscript to a publisher, they'll probably make up their mind in the first seven seconds. And from judging many, many competitions now, um, yes, of course, I read the entire thing. Of course, publishers will read much longer than seven seconds. But by and large, in seven seconds, you can tell if this work is good. Um, so remember, you've got seven seconds to catch the editor, seven seconds to catch the reader, but also to any beginning writer. There are two main reasons why books are rejected. One is because they're actually just not good enough. Um, the editors who do pitch sessions say that's the most heartbreaking thing of all because you actually can't say to someone there is nothing you can do with this manuscript which will ever make it publishable. It's not a matter of rewriting it. It's just not strong enough. Mm. But the second reason, and it's one that a lot of beginning writers don't accept either because... They've got too much confidence or not enough confidence. There's usually not enough confidence. Um, a book may be 95% brilliant and publishable, but it's not quite consistent. And so if you're reading it, if at any time the reader feels they're skipping out of that reality, it's not going to work. And that is so common. And again, it's heartbreaking for editors assessing it because they know this book is nearly there. It 
does need changing. It is brilliant, and in fact, often the more brilliant the book, the more likely it is. It's just going to be that small percentage. This doesn't work, and until it is fixed, it is not going to work. And that's also um, often a matter of of confidence that yes, this book is good. And how do you know if your book is good? Um, if it makes you cry, if there's that feeling of transcendence, if the book doesn't move you, it's not going to move the reader. Sadly, however, by the time you've done 96 revisions, it's going to seem so boring and so predictable, <laughs> you'll think no one is ever going to read this book, ever. Um, so, um, But if at some stage this was moving you, and look, it can move you from joy, it can move you from sadness, it can move you simply because it's beautiful. There's so many ways a book can move you. But again, and probably the most important thing, um, about 20 years ago, I went to a retrospective of a great artist. And it showed work from their early days at art college through to their work in their late 60s. And the early work was okay. As they said in their speech, talent is to a penny. They said, look, in my art class, there were probably 15 people with far more talent than I will ever have. But they sat on it. I kept on working. And you could see, looking at the artwork on the wall in chronological order, okay, it took about 15 years of slowly, step by step by step, and suddenly it was brilliant. She had kept on working. 10,000 hours for expertise in anything. Yeah, it is. And so... So persistence pays. (laughs) Look, talent is ten a penny. Um, Mm. Most people who want to write um, certainly have got the innate ability to become superb professional writers. The exception is the one person who has actually written one book in their life about their life um, and doesn't really want to be a writer, but I've written a book, I've written a book, therefore it must be published like an assignment. Um, yes. <laughs> finishing it is not not the issue. But people right. who actually love writing for writing's sake, if you love writing for writing's sake, yes, of course you have the ability to be a writer, but it's craft. And particularly for young authors thinking, reading this or hearing this, please... Don't worry about not being published now. Even if you are, in 10 years you may be really embarrassed by Patrick White spent a lot of money trying to get his first book recalled and burned so there were no copies. (laughs) If you are writing a good book now, it will be brilliant in 10 years' time, but you will still be judged by the books which weren't terribly good. Well, we're good, but nowhere near what you can write. Yes. So it is a matter of having dedication, hard work and confidence. But if you love writing, if the rest of the world disappeared, but you would keep on writing, if you've got that depth of love for creating books, yes, of course you are going to be a writer. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jackie French. This has been just wonderful i could talk to you for hours but i'd better let you go and let let other people share you thank you very much no absolute pleasure we hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au and if you are a reader or a writer then hop on over to our website and subscribe